Good afternoon. Ah, all right. <laughs> um, that was powerful worship. I just, I wanted to keep worshiping, and I was, I was like, oh, let's not stop yet. But um, that was really good. And I'm really excited today because um, I, we're going to be looking from John chapter 4. And that's actually, um, yeah, one of the most probably meaningful, like, life, life passages in my life. And I've never preached on it. You know, I think, you know, like, it's kind of with every passage in, in the Bible, like, you have this holy reverence for certain, you know, for, the, for scripture. And sometimes, like, if there are passages in scripture, I feel like it's too, oh, man, I don't want to, like, I don't want to even try because I feel there's just so much riches. I kind of avoid it, you know, because... There is this weight that I feel, um, and I think for some time, like, I always, you know, oh, we'll do Bible study in John chapter 4, but I've never really um, preached it because it's, it brings out a lot. Um, it brings me back to my first years of when I first met the Lord, um, but I am so excited that I could share this because this is a word that I feel like God has given me to share with our house today. Um, so... I hope you're ready, and I hope you receive it, um, you know, with a good heart. Okay, so let's, why don't we start off reading first from John chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses 1 through 26. Okay, and I'll read from the ESV. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of God. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, um, God, I can't wait to... I can't wait to talk about you, Lord, in this message and just to, yeah, just share the riches of your truth um, and just how you encounter the woman at the well. Father, you're a God who's seeking true worshipers in spirit and truth. You're a God who seeks your people. You're a God who goes after the one lost sheep. You're a God who wants to bring back those who are lost, those who are thirsty, And Father, I just ask right now, God, that you would open up the hearts and the ears and the eyes of those who are listening, those whom you are seeking. And I pray that you would give them the gift of faith to respond with certainty and with excitement and joy. Lord, would you be with me? Would you guide my um, thinking and my thoughts and my speech? I pray that I will be able to share your truths with the power that comes from your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start by maybe sharing a little story that is really powerful and it really struck me. It's a story. It's one of those stories that grip, gripped me and it never left me. It's, it's a story that probably would go on to influence my decision about where I would go eventually um, to study for counseling. But it's a story of my mentor who would become my mentor at this point. You know, when I heard, first heard the story, it was, he was just, you know, an anonymous person. Um, and I read it in an article. And his name is David Pallison. Uh, but he was, he was a non-Christian when he was working. You know, he went to Harvard, studied his psychology, and, you know, was on his journey of becoming a, a psychologi- psychologist or a psychiatrist, and he was working at a locked ward in a hospital outside of Boston in Massachusetts. And it was probably, if in my personal story with him, I think he said he had been working now for about like three years or something like that. But he was working as a like a young psychiatrist in training, um, and he shares a story about a woman named Mary, and and it goes something like this. And he shared, you know. Um, He's going around from room to room, and one of his jobs is to meet with his patients and to just check up on them, just see how they're doing. You know, there's diagnoses, there's treatments, medications, and you just check up on them, and you lead small groups with different people, right? And there's a woman named Mary that um, one day she had slashed her wrist open with a broken bottle, and nurses were coming to her aid and they were trying to get her wrapped up and they were trying to clean her up and as they were tending to her he shares a moment when he looked at her and she yelled from the top of her lungs and she just said crying why wouldn't anyone love me 
Who could love me? Who could love me? Who will love me? Who will love me? And she yelled that from the top of her lungs, and he remembered in that moment thinking there was not a form of treatment, not a form of medication, no theory, no psychological, you know, um, explanation. There was nothing, no psychiatrist, psychologist, medication, her boyfriend, her job, her family. There was nothing that could answer that question. And he realized, in retrospect, she was really talking about there was a deep grief and anxiety in her heart that, and guilt. And she expressed it in the form of a cry. And in retrospect, he says that that was the cry of her hope in Jesus that she didn't yet know. And something about that really gripped me because, you know, in today's society, you know, we often think there is an emptiness in Mary's heart that she was looking to be filled somewhere, you know. And people were trying to give her things to, to fulfill, to make that satisfaction exist, to, to fill her need. But he is saying, you know, even medication, there was nothing that could really answer that question but Christ himself. And he realized once he became Christian, in retrospect, he, he, would, he would be able to remember that. And I think that maybe that's a little bit of a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty weighty scenario if you think about it. And I'm sure you guys have people in your lives that maybe like some of you guys can relate to. People who are just living lives of brokenness, you know, people who are seeking meaning in life. Um, but I don't think that we're too far from Mary. And I think that in many ways, we are also asking the questions of what is going to satisfy my life? What can I seek and where can I look to to get this really satisfying thing? Right? What's going to satisfy my life, my soul? And I want to start by asking you the question today as well. And it's, you know, why is it that what you are seeking, why aren't you getting satisfaction out of life? Or are you? Maybe you have been in the beginning, but maybe you're in a place where you're not feeling fully satisfied. What are you living for? What, are, what is your life centered on? And what gives you meaning in life? So I want to start there just to sort of give us a picture of where I want to take us through. And I want us to be thinking about this. Um, and the first thing, that, first thing that we see, right, is that in this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, what's really powerful is that Jesus, right, God, when, he sh- when Jesus shows up, here, let's look at um, verse, starting verse 4 or 3. It says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Right. What we see in this text is that God meets you exactly where you are now. God meets you exactly where you are today. 
you know, I, I have, I started, so I started working for this company and there was this really young, um, out of the call, and she's actually still in uni and she's like 21 or so. Um, and you know, I'm becoming good friends with her. She's like really, you know, she's cool. She's fun. And we, we would chat often when we take breaks or whatnot. And one of the things, uh, you know, I forgot why we were talking about religion, but basically she, she got to asking me like, Oh, what religion are you? You know? And I said, Oh, I'm Christian. And, um, and she's like, Oh, cool. You know, like, She's like, oh, cool, me too. You know, like she kind of talks with this cool, like suave, like, oh, cool, me too. You know, I was like, oh, okay. I was like, um, I was like, oh, cool. And I, I didn't know that she was Christian up until this point. We probably had known each other for like maybe a month now or so. And um, she said, well, I guess Christian Catholic, but I have some. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, oh, do you go to church? Right in my mind, I'm thinking, ooh, maybe I can invite her. But anyways, I'm like, do you go to church? And she said, no, I have to get my act together before I can go back. And and I said to her, you know, if if her name was, you know, I'll just pick on Helen, you know, I'd be like, Helen. I was like, really? And she said, she was like, yeah. She's like, you know, I haven't been to church. I got to get myself, I got to get my act straight. And I laughed at her, like not at her. I didn't laugh at her, but I kind of like laughed, like, like chuckled, like, are you serious? Come on. Like, you don't like, and, and, and she said, no, really, you know? And I just remember thinking in that moment, wow, like that is probably a lot of, a lot of people. We think that there are so many things in our lives that are messy, tangled, you know, um, it's just not right. It's unholy, you know, and it's like, oh, before I can go to church, you know, I gotta, I gotta get my life right. You know, whether you think it's because if you go to church, people will judge you and it, you know, we, and the funny thing is like, you know, church is supposed to be a place where there are messy people. Like, you know, if, but you know, there's this idea that you have to do spring cleaning in your life. You got to take out, you got to get yourself somewhat right. Right. And this, when she said that, it just made me think like, wow, I've been in the church for so long. Like, you know, um, I guess for a lot of people, like there's this sense of anxiety maybe or nervousness that they feel or they'll feel like they'll be judged but this is a good news right when when jesus encounters a woman at the well it's not it's not like jesus first says to her go you know we know by but we know because we read this passage that she's had five husbands and now she's living with the man who's not her husband we know that that sounds pretty messy already right but jesus when he meets her he doesn't say to her go and get your act together Go and clean up the mess and then come. And then I'll talk to you about, you know, what he will, like who Messiah is and what the living water is. When he encounters her, he meets her exactly where she is. When she comes to meet him at the well, she comes without knowing that she's going to encounter Christ, without knowing she's going to encounter this man at Jacob's well. But she's just who she is. And I I want you to consider her situation and where Jesus was coming from in order to really understand that this, when Jesus says, come just as you are, he means it. Okay. So let, let's start here. What is this woman? What is the significance of the Samaritan woman? Why are we learning about a Samaritan woman out of all women, right? There are a few things that are important to take note, right? In this context, in this time, one of the things that we know is that uh, Samaritans and Jews did not really get along well. You know, it's kind of like, you know, um, aboriginals 
versus like Aussies, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. No, but what I'm saying is there is this racism, right? Like sadly it exists in America. It's white versus blacks. Like there is racism. There are so, you know, and, and back then Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get, a, there were a lot of tensions, not only at the social, you know, ethnic level, but also at the political, religious, like in all level, there were, Jews had an aversion towards Samaritans, right? So even popular commentators actually say this, that the Jews had this aversion towards Samaritans so much so that when Jew travelers would go from Galilee to Judea, Judea is south, Galilee's north. So when they're in Judea, I want you guys to picture, you know, a little map. Judea's here, and Galilee's up here, and what's in between is Samaria, right? But G these Jew travelers, they would not, the shortest way to go from Galilee, from Judea to Galilee is to pass through Samaria. However, because of the aversion that they had towards Samaritans, they would actually take the longer route, which is through the Transjordan River. They why? Because they didn't want to deal with Samaritans. But what we see here is that, first of all, this is a woman who's a Samaritan. She's a female, right? And she has an immoral past, that which we know about, because Jesus knows that she's had five husbands. In every single way, she's... And you know what's very interesting here in the text here, too, is what does it say in verse 6? It says that it was about the sixth hour. Why would John write it was about the sixth hour? You know, six hour basically means like 12 o'clock, right? about 12. But the significance of that is saying this, is imagine a scorching hot, hot day. You don't go out to the well to draw water and carry it back under hot scorching sun at 12 midday, 12 noon. You don't do that. Who, who would? But what we can presume from this text is that she was probably a social outcast. A woman who was hiding, avoiding people. You guys, if you guys know what, what it's like to avoid people, you like to sneak out when you know no one will be there. <laughs> you know, like I'm kind of guilty of that sometimes. Like, you know, like if I'm living in a home with family, you know, like, um, okay, like I love my, I love living with my family, like my in-laws and all that. But there are times when I knew, like if there were a lot of people, guests downstairs, I wouldn't go out because I just wanted my alone time or my, you know, and so you kind of avoid and you want to go when there's going to be no one. It's like, yes, you know, why? Because maybe pe you don't want people to see you or you, you're, there's public shame. You're trying to avoid confrontation or you, you, you know, you feel self-conscious. There's insecurity. And this is a woman who doesn't want to go out when probably sun starts to set. But she goes when she knows no one will be there. And we know that she's probably an outcast. No woman's going to be drawing the water at the well at this hour, right? But you see, in so many ways, so many different levels, she is a woman, a Samaritan, a social outcast, you know, marginalized by society, you know, morally messy past. But in so many ways, Jesus comes to her and meets her just where she is. God meets you where you are today. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to go back and look into your life and try to figure things out and make things clean. But just as Jesus meets a Samaritan woman, God meets you. And you don't have to get your act right before you feel like you can encounter him. Right? And that's God's desire. Okay. Um, 
Then the second thing I want to look at is I want to ask the question, what is thirst? Okay. So we see that God meets this, Jesus meets this woman where she is, right? And he brings up this thing about thirst. So the question is, what is thirst? I want to give some categories of what thirst might be. But to put it simply, I want to define it this way. It's you have a thirst that cannot be satisfied, okay? Um, there, you have a desire in you. There's a goal. There's a lack. There's a wanting or a longing, all right? And when you have a thirst, you can experience an actual physical need to drink, right? Thirst can look in different ways, but there are three profiles of thirst that I want to use. It was really helpful. It was given by C.S. Lewis. And the and the first kind of um, thirst, the first kind of people, first group of people who have this kind of thirst is, and I want you guys to actually like think about this and see which group you might fall under, right? Um, and before I say this, I want to establish this, is that we all have a thirst. It's not just the Samaritan woman. It's not just your neighbor sitting onto your left or to your right or your dad, or your mom. It's, we all have a thirst. Okay, so let me give you some profiles and see where you might fall under. The first kind of group, this is a group of people who are always on the chase. They're always on the move, always looking for something. They go from relationship to relationship, right? Like, it's like, you guys know those people, okay, like, I don't, I'll be a little bit <laughs> more gentle, and you might, you, this might have been one of your paths, you know, it's like, you go, you date somebody, and then you break up, you know, but then immediately you jump back into another, you call it rebound, right? You go for another guy or a girl because it's like, you know, that wasn't satisfying. Got to go look for another date, you know, another boyfriend. It's like people who have never been single. You can't be single because you're afraid to be single maybe. Or you just feel that when you're with someone, you'll get, you know, more pleasure out of life by being with someone who can validate your existence, your beauty, or whatever reason, right? So, so somebody who goes from relation to relationship. Another kind of, you know, what, what else does that thirst form look like? It's a person who goes from maybe achievement to achievement. You know, what is, what is that trajectory of a person who goes after goal after goal after goal? I think, um, not that I'm like, you know, 30 or whatnot, I think it's interesting because when I before then, I, I only saw that the trajectory is, like, getting to college and, like, you know, you don't really know. I didn't really think about what comes after college. I just thought, like, you know, you just go to college, right? But then once you go to college, you realize, man, the next thing you got to be, when you're in college, you're thinking about internships, right? It's like, oh, what do I want to do in the summer internship or winter? And then after your internship and you're about to graduate, you have to be thinking about, oh, either grad school or a first job. Then after that, you're thinking about, you know, actually getting a job. But then when you're in your entry-level job, what's the next thing you're thinking about? It's like, oh, my next promotion, right? And when you are in that place, you're probably like around 24 or something like that. And typically, people will be thinking, you know, like, oh, I need to find that picture-perfect spouse who who's can add to my profile of looking good, right? So the next thing is as a spouse. Like maybe a girlfriend first or a boyfriend. Then you think about, you know, engagement. And the next big thing is marriage. Then what comes after marriage? No, it, you know, it's may, it may be, it may be like having a family. But in, in the midst of all, it's about, oh, the next big thing is probably, you know, you pay your first 
mortgage, wanting to own a house. See, everyone knows, <laughs> right? It's, and I, seriously, I didn't know that this was actually a trajectory for a lot of people until I was like mid-20s. And I started people around me, my friends around me were starting to, oh, it's like, oh, you know, like, um, I'm not really big on Facebook, but I just remember, I, I'm only, I only, it's funny, every time I'm on Facebook, there's newsfeed, and it's whatever pops up, and I just remember those things, because it's, when you open a newsfeed, that's the first thing you see, so I remember one of those moments, like a newsfeed, there was something about, like, uh, one of my friends from high school, who they just are building their house from ground up, and they were only, like, 20, 26 or 5 at the time, and they were both managers, you know, um, partner, well, anyways, I won't disclose more information, but, you know, it's, that was kind of a big deal for them, and it's like, and for me, I was like, oh, I didn't know, like, people are, people think about, like, building houses from ground up, you know, maybe because I'm dating a guy who's in seminary, or, you know, who's in ministry. <laughs> All right, but <laughs> it's okay. Our, you know, our treasure's not in things. It's okay, honey. Anyways, um, no, but seriously, you know, like, I was like, wow, people have these goals. And then, you know, what's the next big thing is after you build your own house, the next thing is it's like investment property. You know, it's kind of like monopoly. Like when you're playing a game, it's like one after another, all you're trying to do is you're trying to acquire more, right? And then what I realized actually after that is, you know, like going on vacation, that became the next big thing in my friend's lives as well. And, you know, mine too. But what the point is, you go from goal to goal to goal, from achievement to the next, and it's just never ending. And these are the people who are seeking pleasure in that goal. You know, why are people, why are some businessmen, why do they have multiple businesses? Some people are serial entrepreneurs. They go from one business, and then the next thinking is like, oh, I got a next project. I got to start the next business. Why? There's this need to have more right? And success gives them that pleasure. So maybe some of you are, think, are, are, are not, not too far from that spectrum. You know, are you going after goal after goal after goal, thinking that they're going to ultimately satisfy you, right? Um, or even from traveling, right? Travel is a form of pleasure in life, but some people also look to this as a source of satisfaction. You know, we start off by, oh, I'm going to travel to Melbourne, right? I'm going to go to Perth, and it becomes New Zealand, and then it becomes maybe Hong Kong next, and then Singapore, and then it's like, oh, maybe Korea, you know, and then it's like America, because it's the greatest, <laughs> you know, but then it's, and then it's, you know, but, but for Americans, it's, it's always like, oh, the, if, you know, it's like, oh, you start off going to London, then it's Paris, and it's Spain, and you start branching out, and it's, you know, the more and more you can tell people your travel profile, for some reason, you kind of are looked upon as like, wow, like they're living the life, right? But even that excitement you feel when you first go from, when you, when you think about a foreign country, even that perishes at some point. You know, don't you guys have those people, friends in your lives who tell you, oh, I can't wait till my holiday next week. And then they go and come back and it's like, oh, it was amazing. But you know, you know what? There are people who think, I got When's the next holiday? I got to plan the next holiday. You know, I actually, I have friends like that who are constantly excited about thinking about the next travel plan because that's what they look to as a source of satisfaction. So in so many ways, you're always chasing, pursuing something, right? Um, the next, oh, oh but you know, you know, what's interesting is that, um, I, I do want to say this. 
when we're younger, I think we're more pleased by sensual pleasures, meaning things that we get from the five senses, you know, like video games. That's a, that's you get you get excitement out of playing video games, or you know, um, watching movies, or getting drunk, or you know, like like partying. Like these things are exciting. But I, once you get into a certain life stage, like if you're like 35 and you're still partying like you were 20, it's actually not cool. <laughs> you know, you're cool if you're 20 and you're partying. You know, in in the world eyes. But when you're 35, the next the next pleasure seeking is not really like those things. It's not video games, whatever, but it's actually, you start to want achievements. And like I said, but it's about, it becomes about power and control. That's what you become. You, you, you start to desire, you know, it's not enough. If you are just, you know, like a manager, now you want to make partner. There's more of that. There's always a development of the power and control you want to seek. And that also gives you a pleasure in this world. Okay. I want to talk about the second profile that C.S. Lewis talks about, and um, I want to call this group of people disillusioned and jaded. Okay, and I, I have a heart for this group because I don't know. I just I just do. Let's see. Okay, so this is a group of people who have who can you know you know those people who look at you and say you know I was once like you, but when you get to my age dot, 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 you'll know, right? It's the people who are just jaded in life, you know, people who, who can look at the fresh, young, you know, uni grads, and they're like, oh, you have no idea what you're, you're you know, um, what you're after. You have no idea what you want. And they, they kind of come off like they have this life experience. Like, I think when you're 50 and you say that's a little bit more understandable, but, you know, there are people who are like 30 and they say things like that, and it's kind of like, wow, they're really jaded, <laughs> you know? Or they scoff at your... You know, like Pastor Paul preached last week about wonders, and it's almost like if you have, if you have too much wonder, they look at you and they mock you, and they just think like, "Man, you're too happy." And I was one of those people in in college. Like a lot of jaded New Yorkers would look at me and just think like, "Man, like you have no idea like how hard and tough life is." Like Pastor Paul was that guy, and I was probably that girl who's too happy about nothing, you know. <laughs> but um, but but that's why I probably had a heart for him. <laughs> I saw that there was a need and a problem, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, this group of people, this group of people, they're, they're, they're so disillusioned by what life has to offer. This is a group of people who have maybe been in relationships, maybe people who grew up in broken homes and saw broken marriages and they thought like, you know what, this is what marriage is. And they're just so disillusioned by what they think good things are supposed to be. Maybe they've been in a relationship you know, themselves. Maybe you've been in a relationship yourself and you've experienced broken trust. And after such a bad experience, you're just like, you know what? Like, this is not for me. Like, and you know, there are people who, who really, you know, hate women because it's like, oh, women, girls, you know, I don't know what do guys say? It's like always portrayed girls in movies are portrayed like, oh, girls hurt. You know, they are heartbreakers or whatever, you know, but you experience that disillusionment of what you thought relationship was supposed to be like because of broken trust. Or maybe you're disillusioned by what you think church was supposed to be like. You know, leaders have failed you. Pastors have failed you. And you just think, this is, this is what religion is supposed to be? And especially probably for a lot of you, people who you think that after you're graduating from uni and you start your first job and you start your, your life is getting somewhere... You think the world 
is your playground. But then you start to realize, actually, like, what? I've worked my butt off all four years to have this job, right? Like, I told you about this girl at my work, right? And she's 21. She's pretty young. And, you know, it's really funny. She works part-time. <laughs> she makes me laugh because she'll say things like this. Like, she'll come to work and she'll be like, I told you she kind of speaks with swag. She'll be like, she'll say to me, oh, Jamie, we got to go to lunch. I'm going to make an appointment at somewhere, you know? And I'll be like, okay, you know? And she'll just say, we got to get out of the office, you know? And I'm thinking, you're hardly in. <laughs> like, come on, you work three days a week and you're talking about wanting to get out? Like, it's just funny to me. But the way that I look at her is like, wow, she's so young. But I'm not going to tell her that because she can be, I don't want to be condescending. But I adore her in that way because I look at her and think like, wow, she is just, getting started, you know? Um, and my other coworker who is m probably more of her supervisor, she's a little bit younger than me, but she's had some quite work experience. And she says to her, and she said, welcome to the real world, girl, you know? And because and she, she was complaining about, oh, it's so beautiful outside. I want to be out. Like, why are we in? And she says, welcome to the real world. This is what it means to work, you know? And you know, that's what it is. And for her, her dream and her vision was to be a writer and editor. She's in this because she wants to be published. But she's have, she has this job and she's just doing, you know, like really mundane things that are, that she thought that she, you know, that excitement about having a professional career, it's not happening yet. But isn't that for a lot of you guys too, you know? So, so there is those people and people who have been disillusioned and jaded, you know, the way that they approach life is, okay, now I see what real life is like. And they end up repressing the actual desires and longings that they have because of fear that they'll be disappointed. They don't want to be disillusioned. And so they go, they're fairly okay in life. But, the, but if you really listen to their hearts and get to know them, what they're doing is they're repressing the desire that they have and they deny it because they don't want to be disillusioned or jaded again. But there is a third kind of group. And this is, C.S. Lewis calls this the Christian way. What's important so far is this, is that there's nothing wrong with earthly pleasures. There is a problem, however, when we look to earthly pleasures as our ultimate source of satisfaction. You know, we can have these earthly pleasures and enjoy it and not be like the jaded, disillusioned person who shuns them and mocks at them. We enjoy it and we're grateful for it. You know, they're good. Some are good things. But the question is, are you seeking for more than those earthly pleasures? These earthly pleasures are not ultimate. And what we... What, CS, what you'll see is that you've got to have more desire. You've got to desire for something more that will ultimately satisfy. And I want to read this quote from C.S. Lewis because he, man, he says it so eloquently and clearly. So can you guys listen up? Okay, I'm going to read. I'm going to read. I, I usually don't read, but I want to read this quote. It's worth reading. So here we go. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the Christian says... Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. 
A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such thing as sex. If I, find, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo, echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. Isn't that so good? You know, what is he saying here? <laughs> I don't want to reinterpret what he just said. <laughs> but, you know, what he's basically saying is, look, if you have longings in, in, your, in your heart and you're not being satisfied with earthly pleasure, that probably means you need to find that satisfaction from something outside of what this earth could offer you. You wouldn't have that longing in the first place if it was never meant to be fulfilled. But guess what? It is meant to be fulfilled, not by the things of this world, but by things outside of the world, right? And you know what I love about it is that these earthly pleasures, they're not, they're not meant to satisfy you. And I love that he says they're only meant to arouse you, arouse the thing of what, which you're supposed to want even greater, marriage. Pastor Paul always says marriage is hard, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know what? Marriage is not it. Like, I don't want us to act like, you know, I don't want you guys to think like we have no happy marriage because we're talking, I'm up here saying, hey, marriage is not it. It's great. But listen, marriage is only a satisfaction that's supposed to arouse in my heart for something greater. And that's marriage ultimately in, with Christ. Like you taste the beauty of marriage now and you learn so much, man, like the deep covenant, like the deep things that you experience with your spouse forgiveness like you know no one can hurt you but also love you and cherish you more than your spouse and man like it's great and i can't imagine i can't fathom what that would be like in heaven in my, my, my in, when i am united with christ what that would be like it's only a shadow it's a copy family church that's only a copy of what we're going to experience in heaven See, things on this world are only supposed to satisfy, are not supposed to satisfy ultimately. They're only to awaken you for something more, something greater. When I was in high school, about like 16, um, I was a little bit different, okay, in the sense that uh, <laughs> I really started to the way that I really um, went on to the search for seeking Christ was I had a lot of friends who, you know, and the, I, I, like I would hang out with them or whatever. But for some reason, I don't know why. I think this is the way God made me. But at that age of 15, 16 years old, I would see my friends doing things like, you know, like 
drinking, you know, um, they would go to parties and they would smoke up. I don't know if that's the phrase you guys use, like smoke marijuana, basically, get high. And they would literally just talk about things and they would crack themselves up, you know. Um, and girls were so into, into like, you know, boyfriends and all these things. And for some reason, for me, I never, I would always ask myself, what is the point of life? Like, I know that's weird, because I was only 16, but I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, and, but th the reason why it also sparked and stimulated and stirred up those thoughts, like, they were very existential questions that I started asking earlier on. The, one of the reasons for that is because my parents at that time in my life, they were going through a hard time. It was a very difficult marriage season. Um, and, you know, my parents were, it had decided that they were going to, you know, like, take, spend some time apart from each other. Um, and that was my first year in high school, my twin and me, and our older sister's four years older. So she had left California and moved out to the East Coast to start her uni. So it was really just my mom and me and my sister. Um, and my mom was working so hard, right, trying to just, you know, like make the ends meet. Um, and my sister and I, like I would, you know, we were, we were studious students, um, diligent. But I would kind of just look at the world in front of me, and it's like, you know, why is my mom working so hard? Like, for what? Is it for, for us? And is that it? You know, I would look at my friends who would just drink and be happy for four or five hours on a Friday night. And, like, that's it. And, and for me, it's like I would go to school and study hard, but, like, where, what for? And... I was, I didn't really find anything attractive. I didn't find alcohol attractive. I didn't really find drugs that appealing. Because I just thought, like, what's the meaning of drugs? <laughs> you know? Like, what's the meaning of, for me, I just wanted meaning in life, I think. I, and I just didn't feel like alcohol answered those questions. Um, and so, like, there was this deep dissatisfaction in my heart. And I wanted to know that if I, was, if I were to approach my life living as a diligent student, if I, needed, if I had goals, if my mom was working so hard, I needed to have a purpose. And I was determined to find that, right? And, there was, and I, would, I was one of those people like, yeah, I grew up in the church, but you know, that was, was kind of like my rebellious stage where I would go to my Bible studies. And I would give my Bible study teachers a hard time by asking questions like, well, why would Jesus do this? Like trying to disprove them basically, because I was determined to, to declare it. I was ready to say, I'm not Christian and I got to move on to, I got Cause you know, I was trying to find meaning in life. Right. So the first thing I had to deal with was Christianity because it was, it was confronting me and I was in the church. So I was trying to find reasons to show my teachers that Christianity wasn't real. But you know, like every single time I would do that, my heart would be stirred up. And I just, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It just, maybe some of you guys feel like that, you know? And that's why I really have heart for people who go through life always thinking about meaning in life because I relate to them. Once I found meaning, it completely transformed me. That's why I had this passion, like, oh, watch. And you'll, when you find this meaning, it's it. Kind of, you know, I have that excitement. But, you know, like when, when I went, to this one praise night one time um my older sister came back and she's visiting from the holiday from holidays and she dragged me and my uh, i followed her and it was a woman um she mentored me her name is audrey and she shared john four she and this 
And I just, I don't remember anything. I was very impressionable. I was young. Only thing I remember what was part of her story, but what she off, what Jesus offered. And all she said was, if you thirst, if you drink from what I, the water I give you, and I remember these words, you will never thirst again. And I sat there like, wow, I can't imagine what that would be like. Like, that means I would never question, like, I would never have this longing to try to find out what meaning of life was all about. I would never try to figure out, like, why my family situation was this way or that way. You know, like, I just, I felt like my life would feel in somewhat, would have a satisfaction. And when she said that, and she did an altar call, right? But I was like this prideful girl, like sitting there, like, oh, like I'm like this girl is trying to disprove God. There's no way I'm going to get up and, and receive prayer. That's what I was thinking. But I'm telling you, the spirit was moving so powerfully and was telling me, if you want this, acknowledge and confess your need for me. I felt like that's what, what God was telling me. See, the thing is, you can't come to Christ unless you recognize that you need a savior unless a person who can bring you out of a place where you have a need when you recognize that christ is the only one who can bring you from that place to ultimate satisfaction that's when you experience real satisfaction so i felt that that was what that spirit was speaking to me telling me come to me and you shall never thirst again and i got up and I took steps, you know, toward the altar. And I just started to cry. Because I just sensed, like, wow. Like, I, I, I sensed in my heart that this is what I was looking for. But I didn't yet experience Christ until I came to the altar. And it happened. There were many people praying. But Audrey came to me. She actually prayed for me. And she has a prophetic gift right? And she has many prophetic gifts. And one of the, one of the things is she sees visions and she sees visions of flowers. One of the things that she said to me when she prayed for me, she didn't know me. It's the first time I've ever encountered her. And when she was praying for me, she said, I see a vision. And she described of a sunflower. And actually sunflower is one of my favorite flowers, but she was like, I see a sunflower. And she described the condition of a flower and it was withered. It was dry. And just the language that she used it was like God knew exactly what I was going through. That condition was a condition of my heart, actually. And that was the first time when I encountered Christ. And that's when I knew, like, wow. If this is a Christ who gives me a promise that I'll never thirst again if I follow him, this is what I want. I want Christ. I want, I, want, I, don't, I don't ever want to thirst again. And, that's, and that's, that's sort of the beginning of when I began to walk with the Lord and have invited Christ into my life. And, you know, I share this because when, in this text, what we see is that when Christ goes, when Jesus goes to this woman, he offers her living water. He says, what does he say? He says, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The question is, what is this water? What is this water? This water is himself. Jesus is talking about himself. 
the spring, you know what that represents? It's not just a well. It's not just, it's not just um, you know, like a bowl of water, whatever. It, spring of water is abundant. It never runs dry. When you drink from the water that God gives you, you never find that you ever thirst again. You do thirst for more of God. But it's a water that never fails you. It's a, it's a, it's a water that never runs dry. It's a water that doesn't ever, um, it doesn't ever make you um, unquenched, right? This water is Jesus. And I wonder if you know Jesus as one who can satisfy your thirst. Have you guys ever thought of Jesus that way? Of one who can satisfy all the longings of your heart. Whatever shape or form that is. You know, in, um, in the way that Jesus approaches this woman... One thing I love, I, one thing I love about the way that Jesus encounters her in their interaction, Jesus does not condemn. Notice that he doesn't condemn her thirst. Do you notice? When, when Jesus encounters a woman, he doesn't say to her, he doesn't condemn her and say, like, you're living with these five husbands and now a sixth man who's not even your husband. He doesn't say that and say, you know, look at the ways that you are trying to satisfy your heart. He doesn't, but do you notice, even do you, when he says to her, you know, um, when she says to her, give me this water, you know, where can I get this water so that I never have to come back to draw water again? This woman, in her mind, she's still thinking about the physical water. She, she's not on the same, same, he has to change the subject and kind of get to the point. You guys know people like that. You're speaking, you're having a conversation with people, right? I have people and like, I'll ask someone like, you know, hey, so how's How's life? Like, you know, how have things been? Tell how guarded people are <laughs> if they just give you facts, right? Sharing facts is easy. You're personally removed from it. You're not emotionally involved, right? But when people, when you ask them, like, how have things been? They'll say, oh, yeah, you know, you know, heart, right? It's like Jesus and this woman, he says to her, you know, he's trying to get to the, he's trying to the issue. He's trying to get to her thirst. That's the problem. So he's trying to talk about thirst, but she's like, oh, give me this water so I don't have to come back to draw this water. And Jesus just says, go call your husband and come here. But you see, he doesn't say to her, oh, woman, you don't get it, do you? You know, he doesn't say like, oh, what do I have to say to make you understand that you have this problem? He just says, go call your husband and come here. Bozing her need. He sees the deepest need in her life, the deepest brokenness, and he goes after it. But you see, he handles it so gently. I know that in, in human relationships, because we're very imperfect people, you know, one of the ways that I, I like to think about, I, I, my mentors told me, is like when, when people entrust you with things of their lives and things of their heart, you want to treat that as fine china, right? Like when people come when when somebody comes to you and entrust something into you and share something in private because it's a weighty matter we all have to have an attitude that treats that with like it's the fine china of their life with delicate you know we're imperfect but you know jesus look at the way he handles her he handles it so gently 
And he just says, like, he, he, he says, he just offers her, I am the one who speaks to you. He eventually tells her, if you drink. This is the way that Christ comes to us. And this is the way that Christ comes to you. And he offers you. He handles your shame, the sins of your hide or cover. And he says, just come to me. One thing um, I love, Jeremiah the prophet, this is what he says. God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters that can hold no water. You know what God is saying? Saying, they have exchanged me for futile, last that long. And so often I feel like that's what we do. We have spring of life, eternal life. And yet we turn to things in our lives, different things to satisfy our greatest needs. Why does Jesus is calling out to you? He's saying, come. If you're a Christian and have been living, walking with the Lord, and you think this doesn't apply, maybe you need to think. Even as Christian, are you thirsting for more of God, like the deer pants for water and streams of living water? God wants to give you he wants to satisfy you. He wants to quench your thirst. Um, revelations in the book of um, the Bible, right? Book of scripture. I want you guys to close your eyes and I want you guys to envision this. This is a vision of what heaven will be like when we are united with Christ. And in John's vision of heaven... There's an elder who says, who explains. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let me just pray for us.